Church, it's good to be with you, to be reminded of these simple truths that not only convert us out of darkness and into light, but these same truths that strengthen us as we continue to seek to be faithful to Him and walk with Him as followers of Christ, that the same gospel message that draws us to this God is what sustains us and feeds us this morning, and it's for that reason that we give our attention to His Word. Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Luke? We're taking these couple of Sundays here in the month of December to consider various portions of Luke's Gospel, the declarations of praise for what God has done in being faithful to His Word, answering the the cries of his people, and being faithful to his covenant. And this morning we come to Luke chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 68 through 79, where we come to to Zechariah's declaration of praise. But in order to set it in the proper context, we need to know a little bit about this proud father and his newborn son. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5 and then jump ahead for a brief moment. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were well advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months 
she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I'll jump ahead to verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And the neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened. And his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you for your holy word, which is a lamp unto our feet, which is a light unto our path. We thank you that it was written down for our aid, for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, that we might have hope. Father, we praise you for preserving your word, pure and complete for us. Lord, we are grateful that you have made your word available to us in a language that we can understand. Father, guard us from receiving this gift in vain. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes, that you would illuminate our darkness, that you would heal our ignorance. Open our ears this morning to hear of the announcement of a Redeemer, of a Savior, of a Deliverer, and the merciful salvation that comes through Him. Father, help me, your servant, to be faithful to your word that I might announce and proclaim and plead and teach according to your good pleasure. And in your great kindness, according to your promise, Lord, cause your word to be fruitful among us, we pray. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Like many of you, 
I have begun to receive a number of cards in the mail embossed with phrases like hope and peace or even goodwill towards all men. Playlists have been curated, established, filled with songs that fill our homes with the sort of lyrics that repeat the sounding joy, that speak of joy to the world, tell us of a most holy night. Unless you've been living under a rock, even if you go into retail stores or the ads that are presented to us on our devices, they take up the same tone, attempting to sort of leverage this idea of cheerful families and living rooms that are inviting and tables spread with abundance to rejoice and give thanks. And it's quite easy for us to become swept up in tradition, to become swept up with nostalgia, and have these words, these lyrics, become nothing more than the place setting for just seasonal tradition. The only way for these words to retain their meaning and the emphasis for why they've been given for us to feel the full weight of hope and joy and peace and expectation is if we keep these words attached to their intended context. And their intended context has everything to do with salvation. Because we could rightfully ask and say, yes, by all means, rejoice. But on the basis of what? Why am I to be joyful? And every single human being walking this planet would agree with you and say, I want peace. What kind of peace? Peace from what? Peace according to what terms? And yes, we should all long to have hope. But hope in what? And for whom? See, the full weight of these words that are so common to us can only be felt when we place them within the weight of God's word. Discovering the reason for rejoicing, the reason for hope, the reason and the means for peace only comes when we see that they are the fruit of salvation. The exuberance of Zechariah is more than just a proud father holding a firstborn son. If anybody has the opportunity to experience that, it is exhilarating. But that exhilaration is far outweighed by the exhilaration of what he has to say about the salvation that this son gets to play a part in announcing. If you were keeping track, John the Baptist really only gets two verses here in all of Zechariah's praise. He's a proud father, but his pride has much more to do with the salvation that God has promised and has accomplished. Let me just look back at the, the text that we just read in verse 69. Salvation has come to the royal house of David. It is salvation that's been spoken of by the prophets, verse 71. It's a salvation that God himself has made known by revelation, verse 77. And so, the only way that the message of Christmas and the substance of the Christian faith will ever be good news to you, friend, is by understanding it in terms of salvation. 
And therefore, we need to give attention to the words of Zechariah as he helps us to see the praise of our salvation, the purpose of the salvation, and the path by which it comes. If you're helped by knowing a bit of where we're going, those three words will become helpful anchor points for you. Praise, purpose, and path. His mouth is open. He begins to sing, first of all, of the praise of our salvation. We read of this in verses 68 through 71. He speaks. He opens his mouth in praise because what has been promised has now come to pass. After nine months of silence, the first words that pour forth from his mouth are, Blessed be God. Why? Well, because he says, first of all, that the Lord has drawn near. The substance of his praise has everything to do with God's decisive action to visit his people, and it's a visit of redemption. In many ways, this is not a new song that he's singing. In some ways, you could say this is a bit of a remix in what he is lifting his voice to do. It's been a song that God's people have been singing for generations. Think back to the book of Exodus. We've had our minds there for a number of past few weeks. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then you come to the next chapter, chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we could keep going through the prophets through the Psalms, that the cry of God's people is that God would save, that God would draw near. And Zechariah gets to stand in this unique moment of history and say, blessed be God, because he has visited, he has been faithful, and he has drawn near. Because what was really a shadow for so many thousands of years is now coming into sharp focus in the substance of the birth of Christ that he is only moments away from experiencing firsthand. Because Christ, the Redeemer of God's elect, has come down to rescue his people. This announcement in Matthew's Gospel, it points us in the same direction. As the angel announces there to Mary, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah opens his mouth and said, Blessed be God because he's visited us. And this is a good visit. He's visited in order to redeem his people. He would have every right to visit us, to draw near to us, in order to judge us, in order to strike us down. And yet this God-man has drawn near to redeem. We praise God for the salvation because the means of the salvation is God himself drawing near to redeem his people. 
But he expands upon this and says we praise him because he's the mighty king who fights for us. What sort of visit is this and what sort of attire has he come and for what purpose has he drawn near? Zechariah speaks of this horn of salvation in verse 69. Don't think of a musical instrument, horn of salvation, but as it is used often in Scripture, it's an instrument of war. It's an image of might and combat used to destroy an enemy and to secure deliverance. If you've ever seen any of the videos of those who attempt to go out and hunt those with massive tusks or horns, you know that you don't mess around. Now remove a powerful weapon from your hand and put yourself in David's time in the concern of the horn of a wild beast coming upon you and ravaging. And would it only make sense that warriors at that point would take those horns and utilize them to be weapons in their own hands? And so this image of salvation and this image of Scripture and that the Lord has become the horn of my salvation. This is not unique to Zechariah. David speaks of this as well. In the Psalms and in 2 Samuel, we have a bit of the context where he says in chapter 22, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song, the day when the Lord delivered him (coughs) from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. This whole image of the horn of salvation, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, testifies to us that God has drawn near in the form of a mighty warrior to deliver, to redeem, and defend his people. Jesus then, what we can say, is the horn of salvation sent by God because he is the mighty weapon of tremendous power, which according to verse 71, God uses to save his people from his enemies. And friend, you can be certain you have enemies. Maybe not the one that you think of immediately, but the Bible is very clear that you have enemies. Satan, the great adversary, the accuser, the deceiver, the destroyer, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. We have the enemy of sin. Paul reminds us that the passions of sin wage war against your soul. Death is the last enemy. It's the curse of sin upon all humanity. Whether you realize it or not, you have an enemy. An enemy that you cannot conquer. And yet, God has raised up the horn of salvation to deliver his people. To speak of Jesus as this horn of salvation ought to be an image of great comfort, especially for those who know something of the destructive forces of the enemy. The strength of the enemy. The destruction of our own sin. We see the work of these enemies bringing havoc upon our marriages, our homes, our country, our own souls. 
And yet, in the face of that, the Christian is somebody who is not without hope because the Christian is one who's enabled to say, my God fights for me. He is my defender. Do you know the joy and the great hope of knowing that God is no longer fighting against you, but for you? You're in either one of two camps. God is either fighting against you, you are an enmity against him, or all of that power, wisdom, and might is now turned towards you as he fights for you. The difference is, are you in Christ or not? Those who've experienced this salvation can say, the Lord is my refuge, and the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation who fights for me. The one who should strike me down now defends me. And he preserves me and keeps me against all mine and his enemies. Because he is the Lord, our salvation. So you see a major part of celebrating Advent or this Christmas season is to fill our hearts with anticipation. Anchoring these very words like joy and hope and peace in the context of the salvation by which God delivers them to us. So we praise him for this salvation. Zechariah not only praises for this salvation, he speaks of the purpose of this salvation. Back at your Bibles at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We are to rejoice as we hear of this salvation, but we are to rejoice as we hear that it's for a definite purpose. The word that in verse 71 flows right into the substance of verses 72, 3, 4, and 5. In essence, we're asking the question, what are we saved for? Praise God we are saved. For what end? For what reason? Christian, why has God saved you? Zechariah points us in two directions. One, it's to show his mercy. The purpose of our salvation is to display God's mercy. To speak of salvation as a display of mercy is inescapably central to understanding the very nature of our salvation. Because if we're going to speak of mercy, then it must be done within the context of justice. Because mercy is not getting what is justly deserved. And Zechariah sets this mercy within the context of what God has promised to our fathers. He speaks of mercy as an expression of God's remembrance of the covenant that he made, a covenant that he promised, and a covenant that he has fulfilled, that he swore to Abram. What was this? Genesis 12, God promised to Abram, Abram, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that continues to unfold, and that promise becomes clearer and and more profound in Genesis 17. It goes even further saying, Abram, I'll give you a people, and I'm going to give you a place in order to bring about my great purposes. 
And from this covenant, God brought forth a deliverer from that people and in that place that he gave to him. Of those tribes and of a particular tribe, of a particular lineage, was a particular family, the particular one that would be born the Son of God, the Deliverer, the Horn of Salvation. And as amazing and as wonderful as that is to trace those promises and think about the covenants and how they all lay out, friend, do not miss the great emphasis in all of that. Do not lose sight of the fact that the existence of such a covenant and promise is to display mercy. To say that God saves sinners from their enemies through the giving of His Son is the greatest expression of mercy that God could ever display or accomplish. Because the plight of humanity is our treasonous rejection of God and our insistence upon our sweet-smelling goodness, which could not be further from the truth. Because God would be perfectly just to abandon us, and to leave us to the natural consequences of our sin. And in such an abandonment, that would not be the slightest blemish upon his goodness. God would be perfectly just to bring us before his courts of justice and to condemn us as treasonous, as hard-hearted, as self-righteous, And it would not tarnish His righteousness or goodness in the slightest degree. And yet, God has mercy. To speak of a salvation, friend, that's not merely the wish list of what you need. It is the declaration of what God gives. Namely, the salvation of sinners is the greatest display of the mercy of God. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, the remnant of his inheritance. He goes on assuring us that God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abram as you have sworn to our fathers in the days of old. Does your understanding of this God include the fact that he delights in mercy? That he does not begrudgingly dole it out with an eyedropper, but it is the very thing that brings him great delight. He delights to show steadfast love. That He delights to show mercy. And remember, mercy is what is not deserved. And it pleases Him to do so. God saves sinners as a display of mercy. What that means is that every testimony, every member of His church, is a joyful display of God's patience, of His kindness, his long-suffering, and ultimately his mercy towards sinners. And friend, if you're not a Christian, you have a front row seat to this fact. Because this gathering this morning is yet another testimony of God having mercy 
upon sinners. We assemble this morning not as the boastfully smug, callously looking down our noses at others. We gather as God's people this morning, united in humility, in awe and wonder that God has drawn near to us despite the fact that we sought to flee from Him. We gather as those who are in awe of His mercy that we understand we have no ability to fix ourselves or spiritually better ourselves, much less seek Him being in bondage to sin, and yet, in His mercy, He gives freedom to enslaved sinners. That, whether you realize it or not, is what is happening this morning when God's people gather. It's a testimony of mercy. The very fact that we are here singing His praise, opening His word, praying to Him and declaring this good news is the fact that His mercy has come to sinners. And so as a non-Christian or somebody who is unclear as what it means to be a Christian, you are in the best seat in the house to understand God's mercy. In fact, I would encourage you to reach out to somebody who's sitting next to you and just ask them after service, how has God had mercy on you? What is he talking about? And let them begin to speak. God saves us not only to display his mercy, but in verse 74, Zechariah goes on and says that we might serve him. Why does God save his people? To show his mercy so that we might serve him. Now, As a priest, Zechariah would have known that to serve God, holiness must be intact. There could be no blemish. There could be no fault, no blame. In fact, the death of the innocent lamb testified of this every day. Standing in the temple each day, he would know. Not just anybody walks into the presence of God. Holiness is required. God cannot dwell with sin. Sinners cannot be in His presence. And I would imagine there was a few moments in Zechariah's life where he wondered, does the blood of the Lamb really cover sin? Because I am woefully aware of my sin. He saves us that we might serve Him without fear in all holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the wonderfully good news of our salvation. The holiness that God demands, he also provides. Because the gospel announces both a removal and a provision. There's a removal of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the judgment that our sin brings, and then there is this provision of forgiveness and cleansing and clothing and righteousness. God removes what damns and provides what satisfies that we might serve Him without fear all of our days, living in holiness and righteousness. We are redeemed from the bondage of sin and set free to serve the true and the living God. God saves us to dwell with us. We are not just trophies that he puts up on a shelf and says, see that one? Save that one from a life of total debauchery. 
pretty proud of that one. This one over here, a little lower, you can see that. Saved her, completely ignorant of me. Chased her down. Redeemed her. He doesn't just save us to display us on a little shelf that has no purpose, but he saves us to dwell with us, that we might serve him, being before him all of our days in holiness and righteousness. And our response to this salvation is a life of praise where we gladly offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto him. So what this means, we could say it this way, Conversion is not the moment in which you are liberated to leave the house living in autonomous freedom. Conversion is the moment that you are liberated to enter his house and to live as a faithful servant. And God's people then are able, enabled to say with full conviction and with great joy, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded thus that One has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might not live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How do you find a Christian? Well, you find someone who speaks of God's mercy with great praise. And what does that mercy produce? Well, it produces a life that's devoted to the service of God, that is given over to Him. And from them, you will most likely hear them say things like, not my will, but yours be done. You will hear things like, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I seek to glorify God in this body. We are saved to display His mercy as we are enabled to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. And praise for this purpose. And then there's a path that it comes to us. The path of salvation is there in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. The closing stanzas of Zechariah's praise emphasize that our salvation comes by means of revelation. For a brief moment, Zechariah looks down at his newborn son and pauses to recognize the part that John is going to play in this unfolding salvation. That John is going to prepare the way. He's going to be this forerunner to the great king. He's going to proclaim the way of salvation. John serving as this, this herald. And several images here in verses 77 and 78 are used to describe the means by which this is accomplished. They're parallel statements, heralding the same truth, emphasized in different ways, but aiming at the same idea. Salvation comes by revelation. Two ways. To give us knowledge, verse 77, and to give us light, verse 79. Or to say it this way, to inform our ignorance, we're given knowledge. To illuminate our darkness, 
we're given light. Salvation comes by the means of revelation. What must I do to be saved is the answer that every religion is seeking to provide. Because it's the very question that every human being is asking. What do I need to do to make my life okay? Varying shades of that question. To ask about salvation and the path of salvation is to take up three major concerns of every religion. God, humanity, and what that salvation actually is. Who is God? Who are you? And what does it mean to be saved? All three of these categories require revelation. God has spoken. is the foundation for all theology. Because God has said, therefore we can enter into that dialogue and begin to speak with great confidence. And we can actually begin to tell others with great joy the answers to those questions. Because God saves by revealing something about himself, about us, and about salvation. Just think about these two phrases here. To give knowledge, to give light. We're ignorant, but in God, in his grace, he gives us knowledge. We are ignorant. Our hearts are darkened by sin. We are left to ourselves. We live in complete self-deception, believing that we are quite fine on our own, or if we're not quite fine, we are assured that we know a few ways to make ourselves better. But in this blasphemous ignorance, the Word of God breathes life into us to give us the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin. The ignorance of our natural condition, friend, it's mercifully awakened by the revelation of God's Word. God is holy, you are sinful, and Christ is Savior. God speaks and reveals that to our ignorant state. That's why we treasure God's word so highly. It's not just tradition. It's not just the mere fact that we need something else. But because of what it is by its very nature, the light of nature and the works of creation, they plainly declare that there is a God. But it's only by word and spirit that we effectually understand the salvation of sinners. Because it's through God's word that we hear what we ought to believe concerning God and the duty that he is required of us. And apart from this knowledge that's given to us, you are going to persist in all manner of ignorance and error, walking in delusion. And yet, the path of salvation is that God has seen fit to give the knowledge of salvation. So is it any wonder that the people of God with Zechariah say, blessed be God because he's given us the knowledge of our salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Who is God? Who is man? What is salvation? It has everything to know with God providing the forgiveness of sins for sinners. We're not only in ignorance, we're also in darkness And yet, the path of salvation says that God gives light to darkness. We sit in darkened prison cells under the shadow of death. 
In our natural state, condemnation presses in. The hopelessness of our condition drags our soul down into dark depression, and rightly so. But the illumination of our darkness comes in the revelation of Christ as he is the light that we need to guide our feet to the pathway of peace. Ah, you see, there's that word again. Peace. And it has everything to do with the salvation that God brings and the revelation of that saving through the light of the knowledge of his Son. Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Galilee, by the way of the Gentiles in northern Israel, there we find a place called Nazareth. And there in that place called Galilee comes one to be born named Jesus. A light has dawned for those who are sitting in darkness, a light for the nations. And Zechariah rejoices because this light has come. God gives light to those who rightly sit in darkness. And Christian, we ought to rejoice with him. We ought to rejoice in this light. And we should hear really this, the call of Psalm 107 is our call to worship. If you're familiar with Psalm 107, the psalmist takes us through kind of four or five different vignettes of what God has saved us from. Verses 10 through 16, he says, Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in afflictions and irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts the bars of iron in two. The enduring joy of Christmas time and the celebration of God's revelation is precisely this. The path of salvation, that light has come. The knowledge of the forgiveness of sins has been revealed. And the goodness of light is that we're actually enabled to see things as they really are. Turn on a light and find the truth about the room that you're in. What you look like. Or the thing you thought you were afraid of that's actually nothing to be afraid of at all. Or the thing that you didn't know was there is most certainly there. Light reveals the way that things are. And it's by the light of Christ's person that we see the truth of our sin and the deserving judgment. And it's by the light of Christ's person that we see the truth of God's mercy and his willingness to forgive and set captives free. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things and let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Can you say with Zechariah, blessed be the Lord? 
This is the experience that God calls salvation. It's the reason for which Christ has come. It's the reason for which God's people rejoice. And it's what I have been commissioned to proclaim to you. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for the house of Israel. Yes, we have great reason to sing loudly and often of peace and hope and joy. And we have every reason to spread our tables with abundance and to give thanks with glad hearts. We have good reason to write letters and to send cards embossed with sayings of good news and and great, great joy. Because salvation has come. That is the good news that we proclaim. Mercy from sin and bondage. It's not just some nostalgic ad campaign. It is the truth of the gospel. That's why Christians gladly and loudly take it up. And so it's for these reasons that we simultaneously proclaim God's grace in saving us and our great need to be saved. So let's look to him now, giving thanks for what he has done. Father, we thank you for the revelation that has come in the giving of your Son. We thank you that you are so gracious that you do not leave us to our own to grope about in the darkness to try and discern some way in which we might have hope, which we could never find on our own. And yet, Lord, you've been so merciful to give us the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sin, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would fill our mouths and our homes and our tables with glad rejoicing, with themes of joy and hope and expectation, that all of these words would have not less meaning, but ever more meaning as we consider the great salvation that has been accomplished by Christ and given to sinners. Lord, we pray that you would continue to cause this good news not only to shape our lives and our homes, Father, you would continue to cause it to be upon our lips that we too might speak of you and your worth, that we might proclaim the goodness of God that's given to Christ and sinners. Father, we pray that you would continue to build your church and strengthen your church by the good news of this gospel. Amen.